Section 8 of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 6, Part 2 The Most Pious Irene. Constantine the Sixth was ten years old at the death of his father, and the administration naturally fell to Irene and her able, if unscrupulous, ministers. When all allowance has been made for the ability of her ministers, especially the eunuch patrician Storicius, it must be admitted that the empress showed conspicuous talent and vigor, and brought about a wonderful restoration of the stricken empire. Her abjuration of the iconoclastic tenets not only brought comparative religious peace in the course of time, but enabled her to strengthen her rule by friendly relations with the papacy and with Charlemagne, whose star was rising in the West. The long and exhausting war in the East was brought to a close by diplomacy, and the military victories of Storasius restored the rule of Constantinople in Greece and Thessaly. Prosperity brightened the empire, and it almost returned to the happy position it had enjoyed under Justinian I. But from this brighter aspect of the reign of Irene, in which it is difficult to disentangle her action from that of her ministers, we must turn to events in which her character is more clearly, if less favorably, seen. Six weeks had not elapsed since the death of Leo, when it was announced that a dangerous conspiracy had been discovered, the object of which was to put the royal half-brothers of Leo on the throne. We can well believe that there was some discontent at the rule of a woman and a child, and that the feeble sons of Eudochia were ever disposed to listen to ambitious courtiers. But the discovery was opportune. It removed at one sweep all who seemed to be in a position to dispute Irene's rule. The three Caesars and the two most nobles, and a crowd of nobles and officers who were suspected of favoring them, were scourged, tonsured, or exiled. Indeed, lest there should be any later error as to the clerical status of the children of Eudochia, Irene forced them publicly to administer the sacraments to the people in the great church. It was Christmas Day, and a vast crowd assembled to see the royal uncles dispensing the consecrated bread under the eyes of the vigorous empress and her son. The cruel spectacle was resented by many, and Elpidius, whom Irene had made governor of Sicily, rebelled. Irene ordered the local officers to send him in chains to Constantinople, and when they refused, she sent a fleet which quickly dislodged him and punished the rebels. Unfortunately, we read that the most pious empress, as the admiring chroniclers call her, so far lost her temper as to flog the wife and children of Elpidius and drive the innocent woman with shorn hair into a nunnery. A more amiable way of strengthening her throne was about the same time discovered by some courtier. A marvelous ancient tombstone was brought to Constantinople, and citizens gazed with awe on the inscription, Christ will be born of the Virgin Mary, and I believe in him. Son, thou shalt see me again one day, under the reign of Constantine and Irene. 
as this stone was certified to have been taken by a thracian peasant from the tomb of some prehistoric giant it did much to discredit the more rationalistic iconoclasts who scouted the virginity of mary and the opposition to the divine mission of irene the time was not yet ripe however for an open disavowal of the iconoclasts the heresy was too deeply rooted in the army and the more cultivated circles of the city. Irene thought for a moment of an alliance with Charlemagne, and begged the hand of his daughter Rotrud for her son. The offer was cordially received, and Byzantine eunuchs were sent to initiate the Frankish maiden into the mysteries of the Greek tongue and Greek etiquette. The fame of Charlemagne now filled the world, and the young Constantine eagerly looked for the alliance with his daughter. It would be interesting to speculate what influence such an alliance would have had on the fortunes of Europe, and there can be no doubt that Irene committed a criminal blunder in withdrawing the proposal on what we must regard as selfish grounds the only plausible reason that can be suggested is that she feared that her son might become a monarch in reality as well as name under the influence of charlemagne and she was determined to be at least co-ruler the victories which Storacius had meantime won in greece and thessaly must have given her greater confidence in her own resources in 783 she proceeded herself with a large army, not forgetting the organs and other musical instruments of the court, the chronicler says, to pacify and restore the province of Thrace. She now felt strong enough to restore the worship of images. At the end of the year 783, the iconoclastic Archbishop Paul mysteriously retired from his see. Irene called a meeting of the notables in the Magnora Palace, and from the marvellous golden throne she announced that Paul had been stricken with deep penitence for his opposition to images and had retired to expiate his sin. She suggested that her secretary, Tarasius, should be made archbishop, and the nobles and clergy faithfully echoed the name of Tarasius. The secretary then protested that he too had misgivings on the image question, and would take office only on condition that a church council was called to decide upon it. Within a month or two, Irene had brought to Constantinople a crowd of bishops and heads of monasteries, and a fiery discussion proceeded in the Church of the Apostles. The iconoclasts were, of course, in a minority suddenly the doors were forced and a troop of soldiers entered with drawn swords and threatened to make an end to tarasius and his monks we have won thank god those fools and brutes have done no harm was the exultant cry of the iconoclastic bishops i translate literally from theophanes and the meeting hurriedly dispersed irene once more resorted to the kind of diplomacy of which she was a mistress the rumor was spread that the Saracens were advancing, and the guards were shipped to the Asiatic side and marched toward the south. When they had reached some distance from the city, a message came from Constantinople that the war had been averted, and they might send their arms or equipment to the capital before returning themselves. They were then scattered over the provinces, and the metropolitan guards were recruited from the orthodox ranks, 
the bishops and monks were convoked again in the council of chalcedon and in the last sitting of the council which was held in the magnora palace the cult of images was formally restored in the meantime irene had resumed the work of finding a wife for her son if we are right in assuming that she rejected the daughter of charlemagne in order that constantine should not have any strength independently of her we can understand her next procedure one of those innumerable lives of the saints which have transmitted to us a few precarious fragments of genuine and interesting information gives us a very romantic version of the rise of the next empress in a remote cappadocian village dwelt a very pious man who had won a local reputation for sanctity and impoverished his family by his generous almsgiving he had three daughters whose lives and prospects must have been prosy enough in their rude village until romance entered it one day in the person of an imperial commissioner he was one of many sent all over the empire by irene in search of a mate for her son and it seemed to him that the daughters of philaretus corresponded to the standard given to him a standard which specified the height and the size of the feet of the candidates as well as more material features they were taken to constantinople with numbers of other candidates for the glass slipper and maria a beautiful maiden of eighteen was chosen for the lofty honor it sounds like a modified version of the story of cinderella but it was not the first time that obscure maidens had been chosen for imperial dignity on their looks and the most reliable authority theophanes tells us that irene sent one of her officers into distant armenia maria is variously described as cappadocian paphlagonian and armenian for the obscure girl she was married to the emperor in november seven eighty eight but we cannot end as storytellers do by saying that she was happy ever afterwards constantine was now a youth of eighteen and had courtiers of his own with their aid he perceived that although rescripts went out in the names of constantine and irene the government was entirely in the hands of irene and her ministers he had keenly desired the daughter of charlemagne and he resented the forcing upon him of a village maiden the year following his marriage was one of bitter discontent and secret whispering Storasius, however, or Irene, watched the conspirators closely, and in January 790 the net was drawn round them. They had intended to banish Irene to Sicily, and they now found themselves on the way to Sicily, their backs sore from the scourge, and their heads marked with the odious sign of clerical office. Constantine himself was flogged, and confined for some time to the palace it was decreed that henceforth the name of irene should precede that of her son and a formidable oath was imposed on the troops that they would not suffer constantine to rule while she lived but the counsels of eunuchs and women however vigorous they be in their class are apt either to fall short of or pass beyond the golden mean in the game of politics Regiment after regiment took the oath, until at last the troops in Armenia refused to submit to feminine rule. 
Irene sent the eunuch Alexius to persuade or coerce them. They made him their commander, spread the rebellion among other troops, and at length an army besieged the palace and dictated terms. Storasius was scourged, tonsured, and deported to Armenia. Irene was deposed and had to retire to a new palace, the Eleutherian Palace, which she had built and stored with treasure for emergencies. The lament of Theophanes at this turn of the wheel, in which he sees the personal action of the devil, is equal to his naive praise of all the tricks of Irene to secure and hold power in the cause of true religion. In spite of that zeal for true religion, the modern reader will not have followed the career of Irene up to this point with unalloyed admiration. She was essentially a casuist, the very embodiment of the Byzantine religious spirit. Chaste she undoubtedly was, though we shall presently find her acting in that regard in drastic contradiction to the teaching of the Church. She was generous, even extravagant with money, and she showed a sincere concern for the welfare of her subjects within the limits of her own ambition but she betrays from the start that lack of moral scrupulousness which too often accompanies fervent piety in Byzantine women, and the bitter disappointment which closes the first part of her reign will now make her more unscrupulous than ever. It was in October 790 that Irene was deposed. Fourteen months afterwards we find her returning to imperial power and making a fearful use of it. Constantine had yielded to her pressure and that of the nobles devoted to her, and again proclaimed that she was empress and co-ruler of the empire. The Armenian troops at once protested against the change, and as their commander, Alexius, was in Constantinople at the time, he was scourged and converted into an abbe malgré lui. An expedition against the Bulgarians failed shortly afterwards, and whether the failure did really lead to a conspiracy, or the plot was invented to serve the purpose of Irene and Constantine, a terrible clearance was made of their possible opponents. Alexius and Nicephorus, the uncle of the emperor who had been made a cleric, had their eyes cut out and three other sons of Eudochia were brought from their clerical homes and had their tongues cut. We must not too readily implicate Irene in these barbarities. She had not returned to her former influence and activity, and it was Constantine himself who led an army against the insurgents in Armenia and made a terrible end of their rebellion. In view, however, of Irene's later behavior, it is probable that she agreed to, if she did not inspire, these proceedings, and the authorities assure us that she now began to make selfish profit of the unpopularity of her son and encourage him in license. We have as yet said nothing of the imperial life of the young woman who had passed from her village home to the palace. The reason is that she seems to have been one of those admirable empresses who impress the chroniclers only when they bear children or suffer misfortune. Maria had borne two daughters to Constantine, and the year of her misfortune was at hand. Constantine had never loved his wife, and had freely sought consolation elsewhere, 
and in the year 794 his eye fell on a charming lady of his mother's suite. Whether this lady was too chaste or too ambitious to admit his passion irregularly we cannot say but we have the emphatic assurance of the authorities that Irene encouraged the passion and supported her son in his proposal to divorce Maria, in order still further to weaken his position. If such an act seems beyond the range of a mother's ambition, I can only say that far worse is to follow. On 3rd January 795, the unfortunate Maria was deposed from her dignity, exchanged her imperial robes for the rough black dress of a nun, and with shorn hair passed to a convent. And before the end of the same year, the more fortunate Theodote was transferred from the service of Irene's chamber, Cubicularia, to the imperial dignity. It need hardly be said that this procedure was violently opposed to the solemn teaching of the Church, which now regarded marriage as absolutely indissoluble. The courtly patriarch Tiresias, who had been converted from a very secular secretary into an archbishop, proved accommodating enough. He declined to perform the marriage, but he permitted some enterprising priest named Joseph to do so and he sanctioned the transfer of Maria to a nunnery. But the monks of the empire raised once more their formidable chant of execration, and showered epithets on the emperor and the archbishop. The great monastery of Sacudian in Bithynia was the centre of the agitation under its vigorous abbot Plato. The next move of Irene was to espouse the cause of the monks who fulminated against her adulterous son and his Jezebel, and were punished for doing so. If we feel a scruple about admitting so malignant a course in a Christian mother, we must remember that these things are ascribed to her by chroniclers, who are full of admiration for her piety, and that the tragic end of the story is quite beyond doubt Constantine lost ground, and Irene watched her opportunity. It came in the month of September 796, when mother and son went, with a large and distinguished company, to take the hot baths at Prusia. Theodote had remained behind, so as to be near the Porphyra Palace, and she presently sent a message that a son was born. Constantine galloped in delight to the city, and Irene set to work. By amiable conversation and secret gifts she won a number of the officers, and the conspiracy quietly proceeded when they returned to Constantinople. The following summer Constantine set out against the Saracens, and Irene, fearing that he might return with glory and renewed popularity, for he was a skilful and vigorous soldier, determined to strike. Constantine was recalled to the city by some false intelligence, and as he went one day, 17th June, from the Hippodrome to join his wife, whose baby had recently died, in the palace of Blackernay, he was attacked. He escaped and fled by boat to the Asiatic side, where Theodote joined him. The position was now critical, as a number of nobles and officers were with Constantine, and Irene heard that others were daily crossing the water. For a moment she trembled and thought of sending bishops to ask her son to allow her to retire into private life, but there remained one device. 
among the courtiers with constantine were some whom she had already compromised and she sent a secret message to these men to the effect that she would reveal their perfidy to the emperor if they remained with him the stratagem succeeded in the early morning of fifteenth august the emperor was brought bound to his palace and lodged in the porphyra and there in the very palace in which he had been born his eyes were brutally cut out by the knives of the soldiers at the ninth hour of the day some of the chroniclers observed that the work was done in such a way that the men really intended to kill constantine that is misleading since it would have been perfectly easy to kill him whereas we know that he lingered in confinement in the therapia palace for some years the truth probably is that irene's casuistry permitted the horrible mutilation but forbade the murder of her son but her agents probably concluded that if they accidentally and unintentionally killed constantine there would be few tears shed it would be difficult to find a parallel to this horrible deed in the long story of the pagan empresses and we press on to the conclusion of irene's reign for several years she continued to rule the empire in peace and prosperity one or two feeble revolts were made and more eyes were cut from their sockets but the year seven ninety nine opened with little sign of trouble decrees went forth in the name of irene the great king and autocrat of the romans she built convents and established charitable foundations she gladdened the hearts of the poor by remitting taxes and import duties and scattering money amongst them as she rode to church in a golden chariot drawn by four white horses the reins of each held by one of the highest dignitaries of the empire the pope blessed her he had put out the eyes of his predecessor and the great charlemagne sent legates to ask her hand in marriage and the blind emperor lingered in his palace prison with his faithful theodote waiting for the thunder of jupiter in the year eight hundred the shadow of the avenger seemed to come over the palace irene had two powerful ministers storasius who had of course returned from the service of the altar and etius and their quarrels filled the palace and the heart of irene with bitterness in seven ninety nine she had been dangerously ill and their intrigues had doubled she recovered and storasius determined to make a bold attempt to secure the purple his conspiracy was discovered and irene holding a council in the gold-roofed dining-hall decreed that no military officer was to approach storasius the sentence seems mild but the truth was that in spite of doctors and priests who lied to him even as he spat blood storasius was dying he passed away in june and etius commanded the palace the end came in eight o two Etius had frustrated the proposal of a marriage of Charlemagne and Irene, who seems to have favored it, she was still only in her fiftieth year, because he designed to secure the purple for his brother, and thus maintain his position. But the legates of Charlemagne lingered in Constantinople, and witnessed the fall of the great empress. 
on the evening of thirty first october eight o two when irene lay ill in her eleutherian palace a group of nobles and officers knocked at the door of the chalk and summoned the guard they had they said been sent by irene to put nicephorus the chancellor of the exchequer on the throne she wished to forestall etius in the darkness and confusion they were admitted, and they took possession of the palace, and set guards round the Eleutherian palace. Almost before dawn, the next morning, they conveyed Nicephorus to the great church to be crowned, and although Irene's liberality had won the people, and they gathered in the square to damn Nicephorus and the archbishop, and raise cheers for Irene, they were powerless." The nobles and officers were resolved to tolerate the insolence of Etius no longer. Irene, sick and dispirited, was incapable of making one of those spurts of energy or astute stratagems which had so often saved her. When the hypocritical Nicephorus came to visit her in her apartments, she quietly begged that she might be permitted to end her days in her Eleutherian palace. He had often been a guest at her table, and grossly deceived her. Even the nobles were yet to learn what a brute they had put on the throne. He promised that if she would swear on the cross to give up the whole of the imperial treasure, she should retire to her palace. It was believed that treasure was hidden in various places in that labyrinth of palaces. Even the blind Constantine was brought forth to say in which wall a certain treasure was hidden. Irene swore her last oath, gave a list of the hiding places, and was promptly imprisoned in a monastery she had built on the prince's islands, a group of small islands in view of the palace on the Sea of Marmara. Constantinople seems to have been deeply moved, and a month later she was removed to a dismal prison on the island of Lesbos. There, under a strong guard, rigorously isolated from her friends, she spent nine miserable months reflecting on the strange career she had run since she had left Athens in the pride of her youth and beauty. She died on 9th August, 803, and was buried in her monastery on the Prince's Islands. End of Section 8